Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Grace and peace to you. Listen, what I want to do this morning is share with you the biblical vision for masculinity. Now, there are two reasons for this topic. And the first is that boys and men are having trouble in our society. In his recent book, Of Boys and Men, Richard Reeves lays out the case. Boys are struggling at school and on campus. Men are losing ground in the labor market. And fathers are losing touch with their children. So Reeves says that the gender gap in college degrees awarded today is wider than it was in the 1970s, but in the opposite direction. So in other words, it used to be that men were the ones with all the degrees, but now it's the opposite. Men are behind women some 14 percentage points when it comes to earning a degree. He continues, the wages of most men are lower, low, lower today than they were in the 19, in, excuse me, in 1979, while women's rate wages have risen across the board. So today, some 19 million men are without work, and the largest demographic within that number is young men in the prime of their lives, ages 25 to 34. And lastly, Reeve notes, one in five fathers is not living with their children. And these problems, and this is what I was surprised to find in his research, are not merely individual. So the problem of you know, one man failing, but they're structural. Reeves goes on and he says, boys are falling behind at school and college because the education system is structured in a way that puts them at a disadvantage. Men are struggling in the labor market because of an economic shift away from traditionally male jobs. So from more sort of factory, that kind of work, to before a computer, more service-oriented. Men are struggling to make that transition. And then he says, and fathers are dislocated because the cultural role of family providers has been hollowed out. So men are struggling. Boys are struggling. I don't think that's a surprise to any of us to realize that that's more or less how it is. And that leads to the second reason for this message. And that's because of all of this, it's given way to an identity crisis for men. Most men are disoriented and lost when it comes to their role and who they are supposed to be. Without a clear definition of manhood and without obvious on-ramps to becoming a man, boys and men have turned one of two directions. There's sort of two offers that are out there when it comes to what it means to be a man. The first is the hyper-masculinity route of figures like Andrew Tate. Now, if you don't know that name, um, ask your sons and your grandsons. Very popular, but a very ugly version of what it means to be a man. And then on the other side, you have sort of the safe-hating androgyny of what it means to be a man, somewhere in between. So either masculinity is toxic, it's an evil thing that men have to purge from themselves, or masculinity is savior and men must embrace their natural appetites and assert their dominance. Now, unsurprisingly, 
neither of these uh, cultural options when it comes to being a man is consistent with the biblical vision. So in our time of male confusion and malaise, we need to articulate the truth. We need to provide men with a vision for their lives that is genuinely noble and genuinely godly. And that's the aim this morning. And we are going to use the, actually, uh, here we go. There's David chopping Goliath's head off. Here's uh, our, what I want to work through this morning. Um, a man is not God. A man is not an animal. A man is not a boy. And lastly, a man is not a woman. Now, this diagram is not mine. It comes from pastor and theologian Seth Trout. And we're using it, again, because it's enormously helpful. And what we're going to do is just make our way from the top of the pyramid to the bottom, filling each category with the biblical material. Now, one word to women before we begin. Uh, most of this is applicable to you as well. Women are also not God, nor are they animals, nor are they boys. So though I'll be addressing men specifically, it doesn't take a lot of uh, connection to draw this, uh, these concepts and, and um verses into your own life as well. So how does that sound? The masculinity period, let's, or, uh, pyramid, let's make our way through. First, man is not God. Now that statement is so general that it seems to say nothing. Yet, it's absolutely foundational when it comes to understanding the human person, in this case, men. We cannot start with ourselves as men. That would be a serious mistake. And the simple reason why we must start with God is because it's impossible to say what it means to be a man without positioning him relative to God. And when we do that, it puts humility at the center of manhood. Let me explain. God is creator. Man is is creature. God is self-sufficient. Man is needy. God is authority. Man is under authority. God is eternal, and man is finite. In short, man is under the mighty hand of God. And we must begin here because there is no other place to begin. Our vision of manhood must begin with the understanding that man is dust and ashes, radically dependent upon God. Now, I will get to the strengths of manhood later. We'll get to that when we reach the top of the pyramid. We'll talk about things like power and courage and responsibility. But we need to begin with putting those in their proper place. Because if you survey the scriptures, you'll find that they almost never glorify natural strength of any kind, be it female natural strength or be it male natural strength. Now that strength is a good thing. I don't want to be misunderstood on this point. It's a good thing. It's given to us by God, yet it cannot become the object of trust. The biblical testimony runs in the opposite direction. God does not reward natural strength but rather those who trust in him. So the psalmist says, 
Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11. He, that's God, does not delight in the strength of a horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of, of a man. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. Have you guys ever seen a uh, professional athlete in person? Um, I've been to a few football games, but we're typically way up in the nosebleeds. But in, uh, I was in London once, and we got to go to a soccer game. And we got tickets uh, for a really good price on the front row. Now, I'm probably like 23 at the time, and I'm a football-loving American. So I expected that these soccer players would be tiny, right? I've seen pro football players. I've seen the power until we got to that front row, and I seen the legs of these guys. And I heard the sound as they kicked the soccer ball booming throughout the stadium. And honestly, I was embarrassed. I wondered that close up to it if I was even the same species as these men. <laughs> now, I say that simply to point out that masculine strength is wonderfully impressive. But it doesn't impress God. He doesn't take any pleasure in it. Why? Well, because it's nothing compared to him. What he favors, what he delights in, are men who understand that their so-called strength cannot deliver them. He favors men who fear him, who wait upon his loving kindness. Now, Abraham is the supreme example here. You remember that God made a promise to Abraham when he was past the age of childbearing, or maybe not him, but specifically his wife Sarah was beyond the age of childbearing. And God said, you're going to have a son. So Abraham, knowing that his wife couldn't have children, him and his wife hatched a plan. And so Abraham would take their servant, Hagar, and he would father a child, the heir of the promise, through her. And that's what he does. This is Genesis 16. Now, what is God's response to this? How does God um, respond to what Abraham's up to? Well, immediately the next chapter, God does something um, rather intense. He institutes the practice of circumcision. You see, what Abraham had attempted to do was to bring about the promise of God through his own natural strength. And now God says, go under the knife. Abraham is commanded to cut away his flesh as a sign that he renounces the power of the flesh. And instead, he trusts God. He tries to do things in his own strength, but God says, you will never accomplish any of my purposes that way. The only way is through trust in me. Now again, a man should never be ashamed of his natural strength. You don't find that in the scriptures. Rather, what he should do is no better than to trust in that strength. A good man does not boast in himself, as the prophet says. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not a mighty man boast of his might, and let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. So this is 
a genuine, rather, this is an antidote, excuse me, to the genuine, genuinely toxic forms, excuse me, of masculinity that are out there. The kinds that are godless and that boast in themselves, which are ever increasing in our day. So on the secular left, right, you, men are emasculated. But on the secular right, men and masculine strength are deified. God really does laugh at that kind of bravado and overcompensation. And he delights to use the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So the fundamental difference between the biblical conception of manhood and any other conception is that it takes God seriously. Manhood begins with the understanding that man is not the measure of all things. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. So when it comes to manhood, the first lesson to be learned for any man is simply this, humility. There is no true manhood apart from the fear of God. And that humility should express itself in three ways. The first is a radical dependence upon God. Consider David, a man who accomplished feats on the battlefield and in the political arena far beyond any of our capabilities. Now, what would you expect his interior life to be like? A proud and pompous man who has earned the right to look down upon others? That's not what you get. Instead, you read the Psalms and you find that David is like a helpless child before God. His tears and his desperate pleas are almost embarrassing for most men today. Yet that's what humility, genuine humility, looks like. There's not an ounce of self-trust in David. He's utterly dependent upon God. The second thing is a dependence upon other men. In our culture, the dominant script for manhood has been for some time the go-it-alone, lone ranger type of masculinity, in which manhood is defined by fierce independence even to the point of isolation. Yet that script is simply not biblical. It's not good for man to be alone. That's the first thing we learn about him. A man learns to be a man in genuine community with other men. In other words, he needs the church. Men need one another. And then lastly, emotional vulnerability. Another script that is making a return when it comes to manhood is the stoic one. That is, the man who endures pain and hardship without showing weakness or emotion or complaining. While this is certainly noble in some respects, and Christianity has had a long dialogue in place with Stoicism right back to the beginning, while that's the case, this Stoic script for manhood is nowhere to be found in the Scriptures. Instead, again turning to David, we find a whole lot of emotion and a whole lot of complaining. 
Psalm chapter 6, verse 6, I'm weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. Does that sort of surprise you? I hope it does. We're going to build to some of the more positive aspects. But we have to take sort of sober thought for how seriously men should take God. And when men take God seriously, the result is they don't take themselves seriously. There's a trust, a humility, a dependence upon God. So that's the first thing. That's true for men and for women. But the second is that uh, man is not an animal. Man is not an animal. Now, according to the biblical vision, of course, man is like and unlike the animals. Like the animals, man was created on the sixth day. And in purely biological terms, man isn't all that, isn't all that different from some of the animals. Yet, despite that similarity, man is radically unlike the animals. He, along with she, is created in the image of God. Now, among other things, that means that men have reason. The capacity to be governed by vision, to order their loves, and to say no to certain lesser desires in light of a greater purpose. So set manhood with reason against pure animality. Animals cannot reason about the future. They don't have the knowledge of good and evil. Instead, they're driven by base instincts and desires. And though men have the same instincts as animals, the desire for pleasure, the desire to survive, and the desire to reproduce, among others, he alone has the unique ability to assess those instincts and to either accept them, to let them control him, or to deny them and order them toward higher ends. So according to the biblical vision, a man is someone whose will rules over his passions. A man whose reason is above his emotions and not the reverse. So in other words, what this says is that discipline is central to manhood. It's what separates him from the beasts. A good man struggles against his base desires. And he orders them toward higher ends, namely the good of those around him. But a beastly man gives in to them. And he let, lets his desires take him wherever they will. So progress from mere animality to proper manhood comes through discipline. It comes through self-conquest. Solomon uh, frames it this way. This is uh, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32. He says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Have you ever taken a city? Right, me neither. <laughs> but we can do one better. To rule our emotions and our instincts. Now here we run into another area where the biblical vision conflicts with the societal one. In many circles of manhood, discipline is still valued, of course. 
but it's ordered toward lesser ends. It's discipline for the sake of career advancement. It's discipline to become a better athlete, right? Everyone admires these super athletes who devote all their lives to achieving this goal. It's discipline to achieve more than others. And listen, those things aren't always bad, but the biblical vision directs us higher. A warrior who takes a city is a supreme example of the power of discipline. How many years of training and experience of self-denial and submission to his craft would he have to have to do such a thing? Yet, however great that is, Solomon says that it's better to be slow to anger. And Paul says something similar. He tells Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 7, verse 8, picking up in the middle of the verse, he says, "...discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness." For bodily discipline is only a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So he says that discipline for the purpose of godliness is the only kind of discipline that reaps benefits beyond death. While discipline for most other things, it only profits us in this life. It sort of dies with the body. So the biblical vision of manhood, in contrast to the dominant societal vision, is more expansive. It has a wider field of vision. Of, of vision. So one man disciplines himself to obtain worldly goods and glory. He devotes all his life to this one end. And in a certain respect, that is admirable the ability to do that, to control oneself. But the biblical vision, the other man aims higher. He has that same discipline, but it's for that which is truly good. Yet on the other hand, I mentioned how discipline is still valued. It may be dying, though. Modern men have lost sight of higher things. And because of that, they, we, slink back into our instincts and appetites. Because men do not understand that they are more than an intelligent ape, they don't aspire to be anything but an intelligent ape. To them, the name of the game is gratification and comfort. There's no desire to do anything or to build anything or to accomplish anything because there's no meaning to any of it. But a good man recognizes in Jesus' words that life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. A good man disciplines himself for the purpose of godliness. Now when it comes to godliness, I just want to give you three disciplines to pursue, things to put into practice in your life. And the first is prayer. Now prayer should not be romanticized. It's a discipline. It doesn't come natural to us in the flesh, and we must train ourselves in it, men and women alike. So set a fixed time of prayer in your life, and just don't miss it. Discipline yourself to be there and to be consistent in prayer. The second thing I would add is fasting. If you want to discipline your base desires, this is the practice. Because when the hunger pains come, And when your mood begins to turn and that headache begins to set in, you will realize in that moment how fragile your holiness actually is. 
discipline yourself in fasting. And then last, I would want to add, is study. Now, I don't mean simply reading the scriptures, but pouring over them, bringing all your energy and concentration to bear on the task. Psalm 119, verses 15 and 16, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Discipline yourself in these things for the purpose of godliness. And that discipline, at the end of the day, is what separates proper manhood from mere animal life. That leads us to the third rung on the pyramid, which is that man is not a boy. Now, what do you think the difference is between a man and a boy? I think you can boil it down to one word, and that's, I don't know if I heard it, that's responsibility. Boys, like girls, but especially boys, need parents and guardians, that is, responsible adults who can make good decisions for them and direct them on the right path. They need moms and dads to feed them and to shop for them. They need their parents to wake them up for school and to make sure they get there on time. They need their parents and other adults to pry them away from screens and to hold them accountable for their actions. And as boys mature, they mature into greater and greater amounts of responsibility, first for themselves and then for others. Now, yet again, here's another point of conflict with the dominant script for manhood in our society. For the most part, our culture encourages men to run from responsibility. It's part of that individualistic sort of lone ranger script that I mentioned earlier. The ideal vision of manhood is to have enough power and to have enough money to do what he wants with no metaphorical ball and chain back home to tie him down. A man, in this sense, is one who's free from responsibility. He acts as he pleases, without accountability and without consequence. No one to provide for, no one to look after, but himself. Now, contrary to that, the biblical vision regards men as those entrusted with sacrificial responsibility. The biblical men, or the biblical vision, excuse me, regards men as those entrusted with sacrificial responsibility. And I want to emphasize two things here. First, men are entrusted with responsibility. Entrusted. That means they don't take it themselves or assume it themselves. It's not something that they have a right to, but something that God graciously bestows upon them. And because men are entrusted to responsibility, that responsibility is accountable to be exercised according to God's good and gracious will. And second, male responsibility is sacrificial. It's not self-serving in other words. It's a responsibility that at its core looks after the good of others. And if I can boil it down to one word, and I, and I think where I've been inspired most is, is here. If I could boil it down to one word, it would be surplus. Responsible men generate a surplus for those around them. They produce more resources than they need for their own survival. And these 
resources are then in turn shared with those around them, family, church, and so on. In short, a good man gives more than he takes. He provides more than he needs. He doesn't deny his own sort of, he he looks to God, but he denies those so that he can serve others. He goes without. He sacrifices to take care of others. Now, this surplus, of course, means material goods, right? If a man doesn't uh, provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever, Paul says. Of course, it's material goods, but it's also more. And I should add, there's exceptions to that rule. There are exceptions to that rule. Um, But men provide not simply by bringing home the bacon, but in relational care and love and time and energy. And what I want to highlight is that apart from this sacrificial responsibility, men struggle. Men really do struggle when they don't have responsibility, especially in today. In times past, the script for men, for most men, was clear. You get a job, you get a wife, and you have children. However, things have changed today due to technology and the modern economy. Bottom line is that women are simply less economically dependent upon men. And that's changed the landscape. Maybe not so much in... uh, the church, but out in the world. It's changed the landscape. And as a result, many men are left feeling dislocated and even useless. And when I reflect upon the experience of other men my age, I find this to be self-evident. Most of them are unmarried and without children. Most of them are aimlessly bouncing from relation to relationship without any real purpose for their lives without any responsibility for them. And I say this not to blame them, not to point the finger. Their grandfathers and fathers had a clear script to follow, but them, not so much. They're without a place. And it's no coincidence that in our society, when we track numbers that are called deaths of despair, so suicide, the various forms of overdose, men by far outseed uh, exceed anybody else. They're lacking a place. They don't know who they are, what they're supposed to be doing. Now, certainly matters are complicated here when we're talking about societal problems. And I'm not even going to pretend like I know the answer to any of this stuff. But we should just know that the institutions and the scripts that men relied upon in the past have vanished from modern life. There just aren't the same pathways. It's not as a clear route as it used to be. However, one thing that we can say, and that needs to be said, it's a shock that it needs to be said, is that men are are not useless. Rather than running from sacrificial responsibility, men should aspire to it. Men need men. Women need men. And children need men to fulfill that role. And though that male sacrifice... And responsibility maybe looks a little bit different today than it did in generations past. It's nonetheless still noble and worthy. In fact, I think some of the changes that have taken place in our society can help men as it pertains to their family life. 
again, the labor market looks different today than it did 50 years ago. And one of the consequences of that, one positive at least, is that it doesn't pull men from their homes as much as it used to. There's more jobs, there's more opportunities where you can be closer to your family. Men are allowed to be more present to their wives and their children. And of course, that very aspect has always been a particular emphasis of biblical manhood. If you look at the ancient pagan models of manhood, and if you even look at the secular scripts for manhood today, they separate men from home. But that biblical script brings them back. It makes men the spiritual, emotional, and mental providers for their family. It makes men those who, it's your responsibility to oversee this, to lead your family into flourishing. So I think modern men, and when I try to encourage young men, it's simply this. You have an opportunity to step into that role of being near to your family, unlike men have had since the pre-industrial revolution. I would like to, there's a lot I'd like to say here about how the home has changed because of the Industrial Revolution and because of uh, different sort of technological changes. But it didn't always look like man goes away and leaves it to the wife. It was typically they were together. And man was a lot closer to his wife and his children in the home. And if we could sort of recover that, that would be a good thing. So the encouragement is, is just simple. Step into the role that you've been entrusted with. Generate a surplus. Do that spiritually. Do that emotionally. Do that economically. You are a provider. That's who you are. That's what God's made you to be. Be that. And that responsibility is not crushing. It's freeing. It gives men the freedom that they really need. Not to do whatever you want, but the freedom of purpose. And what you're devoting yourself to is good and it's right and it's honorable in the sight of God. So man is not God. Man is not animal. Man is not boy. And lastly, man is not women. woman. Excuse me. So before I uh, proceed to talk about the differences, let me quickly just say that the scriptures run the opposite direction. And they emphasize the similarities between men and women. You'll remember that when God created the man... There was no one suitable for him. The man sees and he names all the animals, but there's no one like him in the animal kingdom. He's alone. And the scriptures say, that's not good. And thus, what does God do? He goes about making someone like the man. And when the woman is at last presented to the man, this is what he says. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So overall, what the biblical vision does is it lays the emphasis on the similarity between man and woman, and not the differences. He sees her and rejoices because she's like him, the same bone and the same flesh. Now, I just want to say this, and, and the reason I want to say this is just simply because we live in a time of deep, deep conflict between the sexes. Now, that's less so among the older generations. I think it was probably a bit more harmonious. But if you know anything about millennials and Gen Z, you'll know that that is a very, very, uh, uh, it's a conflict fraught with a lot of, a relationship, excuse me, uh, fraught with a lot of conflict. 
So the scriptures, they don't assume this vision of irreconcilability, but original harmony. Now that said, let me just talk about one difference between men and women, because they are real, and that is testosterone. Both men, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, both men and women have testosterone, except men tend to have, on average, 15 to 20 times more testosterone than women. So that's why at like family gatherings, the girls are sort of wanting to hang out with the adults and the boys are beating each other up in the other room. That's why men tend to be physically stronger than women. It's why men tend to be more naturally aggressive than women. And it's why men are more prone to take risks than women. There's actually a chemical in your brain that develops a lot faster for women than it does men. And that's the brain that sort of monitors risk. Just like until you're like 25, you just don't have that as a man. And some of us, I don't think, ever get it. But, uh, uh, and so when Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 that women are the weaker vessel, what he doesn't mean is that women are inferior to men or that they lack reason or that they lack emotional intelligence. In fact, all the studies that have been done, it virtually comes out 50-50. What he means is simply that women are physically weaker than men, and that puts them in a vulnerable position relative to men. And so that power imbalance that testosterone creates can be exploited to wicked ends. It's also testosterone why men commit the vast majority of sexual and violent crimes. It's just more power is more readily to be abused. So when it, the scriptures describe the woman as weaker, it's not to demean her, but to acknowledge that power disparity that exists between the two. And we can't just, you know, in our day of, uh, well, I'm not even get into it. We just can't ignore that. It's real. However, and we also need to say this, to acknowledge that male testosterone is corrupted by sin is not to say that it's a bad thing. It's not to say that it's a toxin that needs to be purged from men. Rather, testosterone is the good creation of God, and its effects are not an accident. It's a good thing that can be harnessed toward good ends. And it's important to affirm this, especially for boys and young men who are still finding their way. Like The reality is, is that girls develop into womanhood more naturally than boys develop into manhood. And it's for the simple reason that womanhood is inscribed into the female body in a way that manhood is not ascribed into the, female, or into the male body. For girls, it's kind of inevitable. You grow up and you make that progression into womanhood as your bodies mature. But for boys, it's not inevitable. Men do not emerge naturally over time, David Gilmore says. They must be astutely coaxed from their juvenescent cells the shells, excuse me, shaped and nurtured, counseled and prodded into manhood. A boy needs someone to nurture him, to lead him along, to provide him a good example, and to push him into manhood. So it's important then that boys and young men are affirmed in their manhood, particularly those aspects of it that relate to testosterone. It's nothing to run from. It's rather something to be cultivated sanctified according to God's will. And for Paul, sanctification is just the offering up of our bodies to God. 
Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. And for men, that means testosterone. It's not an evil that needs to be eradicated, but it's a fallen element of the human person that needs to be sanctified just like everything else. And so that means aggression, risk-taking, and natural strength need, uh, that, that testosterone generates. They need to be funneled toward good ends. Things like contending, things like building, things like initiating, things like producing, planting, repenting, and confronting. Of course, these are not exclusively the traits of men, but they are traits that men possess in spades. And these are traits that can be leveraged to advance the cause of the kingdom of God in our day. So in sum, I just want to say this. Men should not be ashamed of their masculinity, but neither should they be defined by it. Those are equal and opposite errors. Rather, men should humbly steward their masculinity in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's not something to boast in, but neither is it something to run from. It's a gift to be used for the well-being and benefit of the entire human race. So the pyramid looks like this. Humility, <coughs> discipline, responsibility, strength. It's a vision for men to aspire to. But in the end, masculinity, along with femininity, will kneel in awestruck wonder at God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who is the creator of them both. Isaiah chapter 2, the proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of men will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. I invite you to come receive the elements of communion. I just remind you that this is a, a time of celebration for Christians. So if you're not in a good relationship with the Lord, I'd encourage you not to partake. But come receive the elements, and I'll lead us in just a moment.